I, I need to like bite my tongue again so I can enunciate. <laughs> this is the last episode of season two of Film Formally. Hooray. Thanks for sticking with us for 10 episodes season two. We're, we're doing shorter seasons now because of, uh, I don't know, it's more manageable. Yeah, especially as we're moving back into regular full-time work. So we'll we'll try to have a intermission episode out for you like we did last time. And that'll no, we're not going to. We're, we're going to. Yeah, we're going to. Do. There is no try. Yeah, I think a week or two. We're going to return in the new year. Early January, we're going to take a month to survive winter. And uh, we have some fun ideas for uh, new stuff for the new season. So we're going we're gonna to take a whirl at getting those all in place before we get new episodes going. Enjoy the episode. Hi, I'm Will Ross. Hi, I'm Devin Scott. This episode is about color in two Wogkar Y films, In the Mood for Love and 2046, which share characters and continuity, but whose palettes and distributions of color are very distinct. Yeah. One of the number one things that we try to do on this podcast is show listeners that understanding and analyzing the formal components of a movie is a more widely accessible and rewarding enterprise than it might sometimes seem to be. That said, I think we have to admit that tackling this subject of color was kind of intimidating for us. Uh, I think it might have been for different reasons, though. Why was it for you, Devin? Because I don't understand color. (laughs) But you're a colorist. I am. You do this professionally. But because one card wise use of color is not easily it's not easily intellectualized. You know, you have someone like Vittorio Sturero's color, for example. Well, a random example out of a hat. And he's all about that color theory. I mean you, you can basically tie all of Vittorio Sturero's color theories back to the Goethe book, Theory of Colors. And there's a fairly specific Western tradition his and most other, you know, Western artists use of color falls into. Wong Kar Wai, on the other hand, it doesn't fall into either Eastern or Western influences cleanly. There's a mix. And even so, even then, his and especially when he collaborates with Chris Doyle, his use of color in lighting and production design is really tough to pin down and based more in emotion, mood, sense of place than anything else, anything strictly symbolic. It's poetic, right, in its application where you can it's you can often read somewhat consistent meanings into it, but you run into contradictions or confusions. Um, and that's part what lends them a sense of depth, but it also makes it really tough to talk about in a really clean way. But I think it's important to talk about Um, art and form that does that because if we only talk about easily disassembled stuff that just works super cleanly then we're like overlooking a huge swath of like the best art out there you know i disagree i think we should stick with what's safe and familiar for me it's it's less about wong's films in particular and his style and it's more that just like Color theory and color psychology are just super broad and complex areas of study, period, like going beyond film. And so it's it, it was just a bit tough to decide what kind of scope 
of information on the subject of color we would try to capture in our discussion. So like when you try to understand color in a film uh, or in any art form, it's it's like it's really tempting to hunt for just a formula for a universal formula. But the thing is that like color is weird with that. Yeah, there's no universal formula Um, like they do have some physiological effect on us. Like we know that like red and orange tend to produce somewhat like elevated reactions from us just like physically um, more than like blue or green. And the other thing is that like people's favorite colors, like the colors they prefer or or what they like to look at, it tends to be pretty consistent around the world. But what's super inconsistent is color associations. Mm-hmm. So like with colors or combinations of colors, like there's just not just culture to culture, but person to person, the stuff's really inconsistent uh, and, and context informs it so much. So I'm glad I was I'm glad you brought up Storero before I did, because to me, his color theory is is. It's it works for him and so, therefore it's like great and like I love the color in Storero films, but the thing is that I'm not sure they're successful in their associative objectives. So for example, like have you seen Dick Tracy, Devin? No. Okay, well you sh- you should watch Dick Tracy, which is basically just like it's a pure Storero movie in a lot of ways where you just got total carte blanche over everything um, as far as color goes. So for example, he associated the color red with like the kid in the film and uh the reason he did that is because red is the first color in the what the color spectrum that's known as r-o-y-g-b-i-v or roygbiv and he associated like green with knowledge and he associated orange with maternity and i'm sure that those symbolic meetings and associations with colors are out there and do have precedent, but I have to admit, I don't hold those associations at all. Like, I don't bring those associations into watching Dick Tracy, personally. Mm. So in spite of Storero actually being super consistent and, like, theoretically sound in the way he uses color, in, in my opinion, like, they actually end up registering as somewhat abstract. So the question becomes, I don't know, maybe you don't agree with that, but the question becomes, like, do Storero's colors work in spite of that? We'll get to Wong Kar Wai, folks. <laughs> I mostly like Storero's colors because he arranges them so elegantly in the frame. Where he's so good at using bright washes of color to draw your eye to a compositional element or to create these graphic contrasts. You know, like I'm thinking of like the yellow flares in Apocalypse Now or the smoke grenades that they use and the kind of shocking splashes of color in one from the heart or the conformist where you know you'll have a cut to a new tone (laughs) and it'll just introduce a new world and a new mood um i like that but yeah if if you were to if if you if you were to even if you were to ask me like oh even the films of his you're most familiar with what does the color yellow mean in, in you know the colonel kurtz bit i don't know I couldn't tell you. I could tell you that it makes me feel sickly. <laughs> but I think that no matter what color appears in that scene, I would have felt sickly. It's Marlon Brando's on screen and he's sweaty. I mean, after it was apparently after Apocalypse Now that he decided to get super into color theory. That makes sense because one from the heart is a lot more didactic in its use of color. So, like, uh, I can tell you that 
he often uses yellow with the intent of it being associated with the sun and light and revelation or uncovering things. So I guess it makes sense with the Kurt scene, even though that was pre color theory learning spree for Serrero. <laughs> to me, the color associations, I mean, I know I just end up saying they don't work as far as the associated students we bring into it, but they still have an associative effect just because even if they don't successfully bring in like maternal or, or knowledge uh, ideas for the audience um, because he uses them consistently attaches them to certain characters or certain moods or ideas consistently, they end up being coherent anyway. Right. Like because he yeah. just practices them. So like, I think that's a good example of like sometimes in art, it's almost more important just to have a theory than what your theory exactly is, right? <laughs> like as long as you're applying it consistently. Yeah, the disapply. I, I think this is a wider thing too. If you have an internal logic, no matter what the internal logic is, if it's consistent within your work, that is, I think, arguably more important than fitting into some wire tradition. Yeah, and another example, I think, of that, uh, Vertigo by Hitchcock, arguably like one of the absolute most successful pieces of color design in cinema. And like, it doesn't use green for any of the associations that we normally have for it, at least um, in places I've seen green, where it's like, you know, you associate with green with nature or with, you know, envy or you associate with stuff like nature or greediness or, or peacefulness. Um, but that's not how it's used in vertigo. It's more associated with like these like psychological storms and like mysteries of the yeah. world in the film. It creates its own associations and finds its own ways to use color for a certain tone. So my point is with all with like <laughs> kind of bringing up these challenges is that I think it's important not to allow kind of the, the vastness of the subject to bog you down with reading and responding to a film, even if it's something that like is is based in your personal experience and associations, like that's just part of how color works. Like the fact is that when you use color, you're kind of buying into the fact that individual audience members will have different responses. And so mm. it's not the job of the audience or the critic or or the scholar, I think, to necessarily have to account for every possible audience member's individual experience or context when they read the color. Mm -hmm. Other than to acknowledge that there is a, a, a genuinely subjective element to it. I think uh, this idea was expressed well by Chris Doyle in an interview he did with the BBC where... Chris Doyle being Wong Kar Wai's, for a while, his most frequent cinematographer, yeah. It was in the midst of these two films that they stopped working together. How, I don't know how much Chris Doyle shot of In the Mood for Love in 2046. I assume the majority of In the Mood for Love and less of 2046. But what he says is, in this documentary, he's going through this uh, Bangkok street with all this neon lighting. He's not talking about In the Mood for Love specifically, but he says something that I think informs both his and Juan Carwai's approach to color. Uh, he, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said you know, a lot of artists, you know, they study the symbolism, they study the history of colors and what it all means and intellectualize it. But I just walk into a bar and see how blue I really feel. 
<laughs> That's a great expression of uh, their working methods. A lot of it feels intuitive. Before we really get going on In the Mood for Love, I, I think we should acknowledge that there's a new series of restorations of pretty much all of Wong's films coming out. And there's been trailers released. We don't have new footage of 2046, but In the Mood for Love seems to have a pretty decisively altered color scheme from at least what it, how it's appeared in previous home video editions. A lot of it has been pushed greener than yeah. we're used to. And really, it's... I mean, it looks like Carol. If you've ever seen the film Carol by Todd Haynes, shot by Edward Lachman, it's like very green. Yeah, um, it's really tough to know how much this reflects the theatrical versions. But given that the older home video release was supervised by cinematographer Mark Lee Pingbin. He, at least, does not have a history of revisionism. Wong Kar Wai does. So... I mean, I, I, I looked into this quite a bit, and I just... I think the evidence heavily skews towards the older Criterion Blu-ray probably being more accurate than the new 4K restoration footage we're seeing. And for all we know, the colors in that restoration can change. I trust the Criterion Blu-ray and that's that's we're going to work with that assumption. And I even found like a Roger Ebert review from 2001 of In the Mood for Love, where he describes, quote, the deep colors of film noir saturate the scenes, red, yellows, browns, deep shadows, does not mention like a lurid green hanging over the entire film. <laughs> uh, and I, I searched dozens of reviews for mention of of the green and I could not find anything of the sort. So, yeah. So for those who don't know or need a refresher on what in the mood for love is about, it's the story of two next door neighbors, Su Li Zhen, who is played by Maggie Chung and Chao Moan played by Tony Leung, who mutually discover that their spouses are having an affair behind their backs. And so the two develop their own unusual relationship. They play out scenarios where they try and imagine and act out, the moments that their partners decide to cheat. They co-write a martial arts story. And while they commit to not become like them, they eventually develop their own romantic feelings for each other. So that's in the Mood for Love's plot, kind of in a nutshell. They end up not together at the end of the film. Maggie Chung's character ends up with a kid who may or may not be Chow's. It's a film that has all these ellipses and all these points of ambiguity, while at the same time sketching out a pretty clear trajectory of conflict between your kind of prior standards of life and social standards of life and what your impulses and romantic feelings are pushing you to do at any given time. Let's get into it. So, In the Mood for Love. I've seen it on lists of most colorful films of all time. Uh, and that's pretty baffling to me. <laughs> As a cinematographer, I'm biased because I favor color in lighting over color in production design. Right. When I assess how colorful a movie is, not how successful it is with color, right? You know, but in a film's bold use of color. And this film is actually one of, I think, Wong Kar Wai's most neutrally lit films. In fact, I'd actually argue it's one of his most conservative films, color-wise. Uh, Happy Together is practically neon compared to this. Fallen Angels is... Is neon. <laughs> kaleidoscope, it is neon. Chunking Express, I actually think, is less strident 
than either of those films color wise but it's still i think more still bolder than in the mood for love yeah you're you're right that the lighting i mean uh, so much of the color of in the mood for love comes from william chang's production design and cost and he's done like the production design and the costumes and stuff on like almost all of Wong Kar Wai's work from his whole career and edited but even then I mean there's a lot of muted choices in the production design and muted just means like more desaturated colors less intense colors Um, Mm -hmm. and there's like lots of kind of muted yellows lots of beige Uh, they don't pop up in super strong overall patterns usually and like you said that goes for the light but it also goes to a somewhat lesser extent for the production design the one that people remember the one that the film foregrounds in its opening credits is is just red which is used for the reason you would obviously use red in a romance film it's just it's just just passionate lust and desire between the two main characters like especially they eventually rent a hotel room where they can meet to ostensibly work on the martial arts story that they're co-writing. But there's, I think, pretty strong implications that they're getting up to some hanky-panky in there as well. I don't think they are. I think, I mean, they, I don't know, this gets to the weird production of this film where at some point they were in the production of it. Yeah. (laughs) But I think in this cut of the film... I interpret it as they don't. And there's a tension between what this place would imply and what they're actually doing. And that's a a central tension. That's my reading. So why is Maggie Chung at the end, a single mother with a kid? Hmm. I always read the ending as the secret that he's whispering into the hole. Isn't about the affair he had. It's that he has a child and he knows he has a child and he's decided not to be a father to that kid. And then the the only other color that seems to have a strong association with it in the film that I could figure out is green. It's pretty prevalent at each character's workplace. Uh, it seems to be generally associated with kind of their old lives pre-affair um, with wider social expectations. When Maggie Chung wears these dresses uh, that, that were popular at the time uh, called Chung Sam's. She often wears a green one when she's more resistant towards exploring or furthering her relationship with Chow. Her Chung Sam's are kind of the locus for a lot of the film's, I think, reputation as a colorful film. Mm. And they're just they're just gorgeous, right? Like it's like this incredible wardrobe. I think it's important that she wears a different one in virtually every scene and almost never repeats them. Yeah, yeah. But there there are associations between them. So she, for example, has multiple dresses that have flowers on them. Um, but there's one dress that's like just covered with green leaves that she's wearing in a scene where she's speaking to her husband. And then there's another one that is uh, just all these different flowers that are just like tons of different colors. And she's wearing that one, for example, in a scene where she's seated at a table uh, with, I think, her husband and Chow walks by. This is one of the slow motion like waltz scenes. And so I think there's kind of like two major patterns to her dresses. There's these dresses where she's wearing green or she's wearing stuff that like distinctly blends in with the space that she's in, right? Like, like she'll wear stuff that uh, echoes the patterns of the production design. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
this is like a benefit to like your production designer also being your costume designer, I guess. And so there's this implication in these dresses of of her blending into her social life and and her community and maintaining her prior status quo. But then there's also these dresses she wears that just have a ton of different contrasting colors on them. And I kind of read those as being kind of indicative of her personal ambivalence. There's also like the Chang Sam in the 1960s. It was kind of the moment where they, over the course of that decade, they became less popular for women. So just wearing a Chang Sam in general is is a is a somewhat conservative fashion choice for mid 60s Hong Kong. The one scene where she wears a more modern, more explicitly like Western, like 60s fashion piece of clothing is when she. This is after. Chow has offered, you know, would you like to come meet me in my hotel room and we'll we'll work on writing this together. And the moment that she decides to do it and she rushes over to see him, she puts on this like super red, like loudly red jacket, mm. right? And goes over to the like hotel and like the hallway of the hotel is just like it I it looks like the Black Lodge from Twin Peaks, right? Like just these vivid red curtains. Well, it also I think it's important and it perfectly like it almost feels like it's made from the same material as the curtains. Yeah. It blends in exactly. And that's the only moment when she explicitly and overwhelmingly wears red. Um, Probably because it's her biggest single movement towards uh, being with Chow. Other than a moment near the end where he offers for her to move away with him to Singapore. And she ends up, she decides to go, but she goes too late and she's wearing like just almost solid green mm-hmm. when she does that. But while while we're talking about Sue's Chong Sam's, I want to talk about my favorite one really briefly, which is uh it's this shot silk Chong Sam. And if for those who don't know, shot silk is a way of making silk where you use two different colored yarns. You use one for the warp and one for the weft. Uh and if the two colors are very different, then you the cloth takes on this iridescent effect that is like the colors are different depending on the angle you see it from. So as the camera or Maggie Chung move, the dress seems to be like shifting between green and red. That's during one of their role-playing scenes. Yeah, I mean, this is like using shot silk in this way seems like it's such a smart way to suggest inner conflict that I'm kind of surprised I've never seen it anywhere else. It's, um, it's a little more original than the right side of, uh, Kyla Ren's face is blue. Left side is red. <laughs> yeah, um, which we lighting. love, folks. <laughs> I, I do like that. It's just I, and then sidebar here. I, I I saw a lot of a lot of takes going. Wow, this is such a wonderfully creative use of lighting. And I'm like, it's pretty stock. <laughs> it's like I, I don't know for a franchise that like introduced the idea of red, bad, blue, good like 50 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> it's like they they still have they still never topped the visual invention of the uh, freeze freezing chamber, have they? But yeah, like there's less opportunities to read into Tony Leung's wardrobe. Arguable that you don't need really need to have a lot of color in Chow's wardrobe anyway, since Chow tends to be more forward with his feelings in general in the film. Mm-hmm. I think besides the fact that Chung gives like an absolutely incredible performance in in the mood for love a big reason why I feel like she's a, the more 
immediately fascinating character is because her wardrobe is just so good at subtly getting across these conflicted states of mind that she's in. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of like the thing about In the Move for Love. It's, It's not a super colorful film. It's just that the colors it uses are just so deliberate and distinct that we notice them more. I mean, like, I'd be loath to try to interpret the purple wallpaper in the scene where they're meeting in uh, in Chow's apartment and Mei Chung can't leave because their landlord and other tenants of the building are playing a game like right next door and would see her leaving his apartment. <laughs> I just, I don't know how to read the purple in that scene of the wallpaper or the blue of the curtains other than maybe they get across this kind of tenderness uh, or, or placidness. Um, it's also worth noting that his bed is covered in this red sheet. Yeah. And but other, otherwise his room is very muted. And then the hotel room, that's by far the most colorful place in the entire film in terms of the amount of color, the volume of it. So it's almost, I don't know, he has this, the bedroom is where this intensely almost chaste scene happens. And then the hotel room is where at least it feels like they're going to break that kind of chastity. I mean, that's the one piece of colored lighting in the film that really sticks out. This kind of set of, it's a repeating motif, this close-up with the character looking out the hotel window. It, usually it's Tony and sometimes it's Maggie. But that's the only strong piece of colored lighting in the film. And I, I, I just found that that's an interesting contrast to everything else, especially that, that, that bedroom. Yeah, it's part of why I think it's pretty defensible to read them as having consummated their relationship in the hotel room. The movie's just too uh, just too repressed to tell us. It's just like the hotel room is so red and there's such a point of nervousness in entering that room, right? And like moving behind the curtain, so to mm-hmm. speak, um, that I think there's just really such strong sexual overtones that I... I mean, it's obviously there's no way to read the situation definitively and that's part of its appeal, but I... I my feeling whenever I watch it is that we're meant to feel that they probably consummated their relationship. I mean, there's, there's a scene that's kind of even more explicit in these, in this way um, where they're, it's the first time they have a meal together alone and they're telling, they're, they're acknowledging to each other that they're aware that each of their spouses is having an affair with each other. Mm. And they're, in a room with greenish lighting there the t- there's table that they're sitting at is green they're eating on green plates um but they're sitting on like these bright red chairs and they're eating rare steaks like really bloody rare steaks <laughs> it's when you cut into a rare steak that the blood comes out right that's what reveals the blood within so that they're cutting into these desires maybe not their own but their partners but there's also i think something about the idea of these steaks being served up on green plates on a green table, right? Of the idea that, you know, each of us is just a piece of meat with our own desires and we try to dress it up. So what you're saying is that Wong Kar Wai really sees us all as dead cows. Yeah. All right. So 2046. <laughs> uh, Real quick refresher on 2046. It's just it's yeah, the direct sequel hour. to... <laughs> it's just the direct sequel to In the Mood for Love, right? And Chow's not doing so hot. After In well, the Mood, in the for, mood Love. for Love is a direct sequel to Days of Being Wild. Sure. Sequel to Days of Being Wild. Well, it's a sequel that does all it can to not announce itself as such for a while. 
Yeah. And it's just about him having these, like him having or trying to have these romantic or sexual relationships with women he meets. Yeah. And he's miserable through the whole thing. And he's a writer and he's writing sci-fi <laughs> stories that are just thinly veiled parallels for his own life. And that's the whole thing. And it's somehow longer than In the Mood for Love, despite, I think, having a half an hour longer. Yeah, like much less intricate plotting. And it's my favorite Wong Kar Wai film. This is Wong Kar Wai's, like, it, it's, it's, it's Wong Kar Wai's To the Wonder, Song to Song, and Night of Cups. <laughs> right. It, it's, it's this almost plotless, poetic meditation on relationships that when simultaneously nothing happens and lots and lots of incident happens, you know? The ways, the ways that we hurt each other by loving each other, basically. Yeah, and Iggy <laughs> Pop shows up. We get our own pop star, though. We get uh, Faye Wong. Yeah, we do. So yeah, yeah, lots of pop stars. But yeah, um, so 2046, not reserved color-wise. No. At all. Yeah, it's a super different approach. It's a, it's, it's a fun house. Um, also, it's in scope. Yeah, it's, it is very deliberately aesthetically different from In the Mood for Love. I think, I mean, on just on a surface level, it matches the content because it's about someone just blitzing through a whole bunch of it blitzes through years of someone's life where they encounter a whole bunch of different relationships with women and each of these relationships is given a different color palette and those are then contrasted with all the extremely bright colorful saturated fictional science fiction stories that the protagonist is coming up with so whereas in the mood for love was an incredibly deliberate controlled every single some tiny gesture meant a lot and that was reflected in the color direction this is a, a more maximalist picture oh yeah everything there's a ton of ideas and incidents crammed in even though none of it really follows a traditional cause and effect relationship yeah like when in the mood for love came out it was widely seen as being unusually reserved stylistically for wong and I mean, partly because like it has a, a fairly slow pace, like the the cutting rhythm tends to be more methodical, um, and the the plot moves very slowly and and very subtly. And twenty forty six is kind of what if you took a lot of the new stuff that he put forward in in the mood for love, and you just like ratcheted everything up. You know what I mean? Like, what if you just what if you set the saturation to a hundred on in the mood for love? Yeah, yeah. It's also like, what if you, like, in the mood for love, it's like, what if one almost relationship? And then this movie, what if a million relationships? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's, um, you know, it's a lot. I, I actually watched this for the first time uh, two days ago, and it, I still have not even nearly processed it to my, to my satisfaction. 2046 is the only Wong Kar Wai film I've ever seen where the sense of space is extremely abstract and not specific and... Right not as geographic <laughs> where with the exception of maybe the Singapore stuff where I felt a little more grounded, most of the film takes place in close up in very cramped rooms. Um, and it's very difficult to suss out um, stuff like scene geography. And there's way less of a sense of like, Oh, I'm feeling Argentina or Hong Kong. I refer to happy together and good half of his films with Hong Kong. You know, when you watch Chunking Express, and fallen angels there's a ma there's a sense that you're feeling like the rhythm of the city right yeah and in 2046 it feels like wong is doing all he can to obfuscate that 
Yeah, it's much less interested in a sense of place. Yeah, and I, sure. I don't think that's a... I don't mean this as a complaint in any way, shape, or form. But it was a surprise. Because even In the Mood for Love has a sense of very cloistered space. Oh, yeah. And like its, it's evocation of its period, even, is just super strong. Yeah. Um, in comparison, 2046 feels like it could be any kind of... With the exception of the fashion, um, which is very evocative. It feels like it could be any time, almost. It's It feels like... Again, I, this is all intentional, but I think this plays into the visual design of the film where it, it just feels like this weird fever dream of a film <laughs> where none of it really takes place in a grounded reality. It's almost it almost if, if you had the if you had the character, if you had the lead character wake up and realizing it was all a dream after and he's like back with Maggie Chung, <laughs> or whatever, right. you know, Oof, um, that was that was a rough one. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, <laughs> but I have a dream. Let me tell you, I would not be surprised. Yeah, it's so there's an internal standard that I use sometimes where I'm when I'm watching a period film. And this is just this isn't a good or bad judgment. I think it's just an interesting thing to think about, which is would this work in a world where there were cell phones? Right. And I think it's an interesting question to ask when you watch. So in the mood for love, would that film basically work without like being hugely reinvented in a world with cell phones? I think the answer is basically no. Right. Like in a world with cell phones, they would do everything over text. Yeah, um, there would just be I, no I agree, reason yeah. for them to have these furtive, in-person meetings. Um, telephones are obviously not all that secure in and of themselves, so you know, just meeting in person is what makes sense. Yeah, or like even even something that's set in the present day of its making, Chunking Express would not work with cell phones, for example. Yeah, exactly. The, those misconnections and everything, like you just, oh, we didn't meet at the bar, ha! Huh? <laughs> oh, you meant California. <laughs> yeah, like so often um, movies yeah. are like written around that with like giving someone the wrong cell phone number or making a big thing of not giving a number just because you have to. People don't know how to write for a world with cell phones, and thankfully, it's less of a problem now than it was like ten years ago. But oh yeah, twenty forty six could work. Like it would absolutely work with cell phones. It's just so vague about all of its incidences that it could work anytime. Yeah. Um, and it's just such an interior focused movie. Right? Yeah. Like it's 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 very much a non-plotty movie. Oh yeah. Which is one of my favorite things about it. Because I like I, movies that are slow and boring. And in comparison, I think Colors and Chunking Express ended up becoming famous because it ended up a lot of critics at the time that ended up um crediting Wong Kar Wai with kind of inventing this aesthetic of you know that teal and pink right off-color fluorescent neon aesthetic that dominates that movie and you know the, the cold blues and just the off-color of every single available light source and end up being very influential um one car Wai, though has been pretty consistent in saying no no that's just you know watch any other hong kong new wave film yeah you know from the late 80s early 90s that's what the city looked like and therefore we use we you know we based our films in the city that we lived in, right? I mean, Wong Kar Wai popularized it. Uh, he he incorporated it into a, I think, an aesthetic that was very iconoclastic and unique to him. Um, I don't know. There's there's this alchemy though of like the the you know the, the undercranking and the handheld and the available lighting and Chris Doyle and Andy Lau's very empathetic camera movements that makes that movie very special. We could do a whole episode, and I one day I wanted to find an excuse to do an episode about like monochrome 
color schemes. But I think it's worth mentioning here because 2046, very often the color schemes in a given frame are either monochromatic or dichromatic. More often monochromatic, where you'll have this red, especially, I mean, the, the, the science fiction scenes are especially that way where they're... And monochromatic just means there's only one dominant hue over the frame, and dichromatic just means only two hues visible in the frame. So, for example, black and white is the most famous monochromatic color scheme. And 2046 makes really heavy use of these monochrome and dichromatic schemes. And I think, number one, it gets at what we've already talked about with it being a hugely interior film about a person who's just like soaking in his emotions over a period of several years. And number two, it's a cool opportunity for a lot of color contrast and contrasting meanings. Like, I find the color generally actually a bit easier to read in 2046 than in The Mood for Love. Yeah. Maybe that's another reason I prefer it. <laughs> like, I think generally speaking, not not ultra consistently, but I think generally speaking, green is associated with the woman he meets. And especially with the, the kind of promise of tranquility that he feels they offer of some sort of inner peace. And yellow is more associated with him. And because it's a film about him and women, like there's a ton of scenes that are just yellow and green. There's a lot of green. And you also have a lot of scenes where the overwhelming, the frame is overwhelmingly just like green and black with some earth tones. And then, you know, I'm thinking of like Gongli's lipstick in the Singapore scenes where you have that one red element that is usually so associated with whichever women is in his life at any given time, uh, just sticking out. Fei Wong's outfit at certain points is bright red in comparison to the green world around them. You also have like, you know, um, Zhang Zi's um, outfits often, though, just blend right into the world around her. And I, what, do you, what do you make of that? It depends, I think, with her a little bit. Like, she has that one purple... Um, I'm not sure what it is, like a uh, vest or like, you know, casual homeware. Yeah, it's like a house coat. Yeah. To me, I kind of read her color as a bit case by case. Like the first major scene between her and Tony Leung, she's wearing a Chang Sam and it's yellow and red. But it's not, I mean, it's there's no way to make extremely clean readings. Because um, the other thing about red in this film that we should mention. I mean, often there's these like strong vertical pillars of red next to uh, Tony Leung, but it's very rare outside the like sci-fi story sequences that it's like the whole frame is red. But I think it's worth noting that in this film, red, it, it mostly maintains its associations from In the Mood for Love, but it gains a new one, which is violence. Red is associated with like pain a bit more in this one. And it's also associated, I think, I think there's a commonality between the 2046 scenes. And I don't mean the room, I mean the the future science fiction not a story within a story scenes. Yeah. Those are largely bright red. And the tones in those scenes remind me of nothing other than the, not room 2046, but the apartment that they rented. Yeah. Um, and In the Mood for Love. And I think that's, that's a, it feels like a direct callback. And that only really changes when, Kind of the real world nuances 
begin to bleed into that. And yeah, you're thinking of when he writes his sequel story, which is 2047. Yeah, 2047. So yeah, you're right. So then 2047, the sequel to that turns kind of green and is a lot more muted. So you go from this kind of like almost wish fulfillment of 2046 to the more nuanced, realistic depiction of his own love life in 2047, I guess. Yeah, which is, I mean, that story, and that story is just about, uh, he's hugely attracted to Fei Wong's character, and she's enjoys his company, but she has no attraction to him, right? She's got a fella in Japan. I think that's a, I think that's a really smart read of the 2047 scenes, which also include, like, I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's, like, one of my favorite color moments in the film, where uh, Fei Wong plays an android in the 2047 scenes, who is obviously just an analog for her character outside, like in the quote-unquote real world of the film. The twenty, the future analogs are one of the less subtle elements. In the film. Yeah, exactly. Um, and she has this uh, this earpiece on, and it shines this red light, like this vivid red light, onto her cheek. And there's this incredible moment when the standing character that Tony Leung's character writes for 2047 and 2046 leans in and kisses her and the light um, ends up hitting his cheek as well, which is just this incredible moment. And I can't imagine how they like finagled that piece of production design to do that. I mean, besides the fact that it's like kind of this funny visual pun where both characters are sexually attracted to each other and so their cheeks go red. (laughs) It's the only moment in the film where uh, uh, where either Tony Leung or his stand-in in his stories seems to feel that he's found a genuine romantic match for himself. I'm not sure he feels as strongly towards Fei Wong's character in 2046 as he felt towards Maggie Chung's character in In the Mood for Love, but he seems to feel very a very real willingness to become not just sexually but romantically involved with her do you think they cast fei wong because um because of chunking express and that open-ended relationship oh, i'm sure it was a factor <laughs> so it feels very significant that, that that like the two major um romances in this character's life are also the two major actresses from previous films right this is the best this is the best one car wife oh man chunking express I mean, I, like I, I it's fun. You don't I like love fun? Chungking Express. It's super fun, but I always feel like the first story isn't as good as the second one. This is this is true. But would you say that the last hour of Chungking Express is the best hour of any Wong Kar Wai film? I would say that the last hour. I'm moving the goalpost. Do you agree with me? It's as yes, it's as good as his best hour. <laughs> uh, um, but the thing is, 2046 has two hours of those. I think his best film is In the Mood for Love. But Chunking Express is my favorite one. Yeah. I mean, In the Mood for Love, what I love about 2046 so much, like In the Mood for Love is kind of like this perfect, I'm using literary, but I don't think it's like a hugely, like it's not a film that is like modeled after literature closely. Mm-hmm. But as far as like it's literary type of structure, that is like um, the way it sketches out the psychology, what it shows and doesn't shows, the way it plots out their relationship and the way it elides time at sometimes not at others to show the kind of developing states of these characters. Like I, I think in the mood for love is probably his like best work on that front. And then like 2046 is like my favorite Wong in poetic mode film. Mm-hmm. 
where it's it's not so much concerned with like this tightly structured thing where like you read the previous scene and you try to draw causal possible causal effects uh, from the next scene or from a later scene. It's just very much rooted in like expressionist coda to in the mood for love, although it's more despairing than the ending of in the mood for love. I think the reason why the yellow and green thing um, I think is such a smart set of colors to associate with um, Chow and the woman he meets respectively is that when, usually when you have yellow and green as the colors in a scene, the effect is pretty lurid, right? Like it looks, it often looks sickly or it looks, uh, you know, unhealthy. Just, you know, when, when someone looks yellow and green, like those are colors we typically, I think, associate with sickness on an almost biological level. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And so I, the reason I think that works is that it creates this idea that Chow doesn't like he he doesn't go together with these women, right? Like him, he should not be in relationships. These two things should not go together. He ain't ready. Yeah. And I think it's telling that in the last scene um, of 2046, he's wearing a yellow and green tie. <laughs> in the same scene where he ends up accepting, no, I will never. I will never change or become better. I'm just, I'm going to accept that I'm doomed to be miserable and always live in being miserable about this woman who I never, uh, who I never ended up getting to be with. Yeah. On a permanent level, at least. You don't think there's any possibility or the film leaves any open, any kind of hope of redemption for him? No. I, I mean, this, this kind of gets to one of the most distinct color stylizations in the film, which is black and white. Yeah, there's that last shot, right? Yeah, there's three black and white sequences in cars in this film. Um, and the first one is with Chow and Bai Ling. And he, it's, a, it's a scene that mirrors an In the Mood for Love scene where he's sitting next to her and he keeps trying to put his hand on her hand or on her leg and she keeps pushing his hand away. But in that moment, the reason for the black and white isn't, isn't clear. But it's only later when we see a flashback of him uh him with Sue with Tony Leung and Maggie Chung that uh it becomes obvious that oh this is this is him living in his memory right and th the irony of that is that his whole relationship or with Sue was based around these recreations right so now he's like now he's like trying to recreate these recreations um which is why at the end when he's like sitting in the car and it's black and white again I think it's just despairing because it implies that he's he's never going to escape this recursive pattern, right? Like, I wouldn't be shocked if he ended up trying to relive and recreate moments that he had with Bai Ling as well. The character's demeanor in the, in, in, in 2046 is so oddly different than yeah. in, in The Mood for Love, where I feel like um, I can never quite figure out whether the Tony Leung character is supposed to be so fundamentally changed by that relationship that he's basically become like a chauvinist yeah <laughs> um or whether he was going through a particularly repressed phase <laughs> and this is his more idling state it's tough to say it's worth saying that wong kar wai has talked about how he feels that tony leung's character in in the mood for love is much more messed up and perverse than the audience tends to feel 
where the audience mm-hmm. tends to just sympathize and love him and in the mood for love and kind of wish for him to succeed. Yeah. Well, I, I almost in the, in, in the mood for love, I almost, um, I, I always find myself more imprinting his uh, chunking express character onto it. Right. It's just this like really naive loner, not naive, but just this really just likable every man, you know, which is, I think I, I, I bet that's why he has a mustache in 2046. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. I mean, it instantly changes him. That yeah. mustache. At the end of In the Mood for Love, I think him burying that secret has a kind of redemptive tone. He's able to move beyond his mistakes and his sins and uh, the tragedies of his past life by confessing them privately. In a vacuum, I think that's a very valid reading of that moment. Yeah. I think in 2046 obviously goes in a totally different direction. I didn't even mention one of my favorite little moments of color in either film is in in the mood for love i mean what ends up growing out of the hole it's a green plant right it's a green and yellow plant which has different connotations depending on which film's color scheme we're thinking about why is 2046 generally received as a kind of as a pseudo sequel to in the mood for love when i think on a concrete level it's it's a straight up sequel it's a, yeah, like even on Wikipedia, it says like in the second sentence, it's like it's a loose sequel to In the Mood for Love. And the entire film is about the relation is about the, the end of the relationship in the first film. And it never contradicts. I, I, I suspect a lot of it has to do with the way it presents itself in the beginning, because it, pre- it presents itself as a science fiction film in the very beginning. <laughs> It like it starts and you're like, whoa, we're in the future now. And then, um, you know, you're not, you're not, it's a, it's a writer. Um, Just a boring dude. The lead character from In the Mood for Love. But it also presents this character so differently. I mean, he's got a mustache, but he's also this chauvinist pig um, from the get go. And, you know, and it just, it really feels like, whoa, we're, are we seeing like, a, are we seeing almost like a what if, like a, maybe this is a sequel, but I think, I guess that's every sequel. You can take whatever is canonical or not. It feels like such a different universe from In the Mood for Love, partially because In the Mood for Love is this cloistered, repressed world where it feels like these characters are so bound by the strictures of their society in a way that is historically rooted. And 2046 untethers itself from all that and feels so detached from time and place. Um, So that feels like it's this... No, it just doesn't. I mean, in in the moon for love is all infused with this sub community within Hong Kong in the '60s that Wong Kar Wai grew up in, and there's a lot of that in 2046, but it's not nearly as directly relevant as in in the mood for love. This was more painless than I expected. Actually, yeah, recording this. Uh, I mean, I did, ironically, I'm. Half of the recording session, I, I have this throbbing pain in my toe, and I just open my sock, and it's like red and glowing. So I'm like, oh no. Um, oh. So this was both a painless and a much more painful session than I thought it would be. Uh, yeah, you should, uh, you should go deal with that while I read this, while I read this outro. Our associate producer, as you should know by now, is Paige Smith, and I'm really glad you listened to us today. If you're glad that you listened to us today, you leave us a rating and a review for us. You can also help us out by contributing at patreon.com, film formally. You can kick in a little bit of money monthly to help keep the show going. And you can find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at film formally. 
This podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. I guess we'll have a little intermission episode, but otherwise we'll see you next season. <laughs>